This is the third Sunday uh, of Easter, and we're moving through some resurrection appearances still, and we have perhaps the most beautiful one in the, uh, all of them, from Luke's Gospel this morning. And all of the readings connect directly to my continuously repeated shape template that the Easter liturgy brings to the life of the church, the fourfold shape the presence of the light of Christ, the rehearsal of the history of salvation, and the sacraments of baptism and the Holy Eucharist. So in Acts and in 1 Peter, we have uh, one of these things highlighted and some other things. And in the gospel, we have really uh, the liturgical importance of understanding our encounter with the risen Jesus. Many years ago, when I was in seminary, uh, I had to read a book by a Dutch Dominican named Edward Skillebex. Father Emerson said, what, how did they tell you? Sure. Yeah, well, you can believe that if you want to. But it's, <laughs> it's Skillebex. He wrote, Christ, the sacrament of the encounter with God. And it was a little book about the sacraments and how he described them as each sacramental action is an encounter with the risen Christ. And he was speaking, of course, principally about uh, the Eucharist. And today, that's what this resurrection appearance will focus on or or put at the center. Uh, And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well. God's light, God's life, and God's love is another way to speak of those fourfold things, the light of Christ, history of salvation, uh, uh, baptism, and, and the Eucharist. So in Acts we have, I'll read this to you because it's a little note to myself. Uh, what we read, heard from Acts, the book of Acts today, was Peter speaking and preaching And uh, it's described in the scholarship as part of the first charismatic speech in the book of Acts. So you can save that word charismatic uh, and amaze your friends. Just keep it on ice. What does it mean? It means the primitive preaching of the Christian church, the original proclamation of the gospel, the charisma in Greek. So that's what you hear, a portion of that today from Peter, who was describing to the people the great sweep of the history of salvation and how the coming of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the yearnings of the people of God. And so the story that he describes is Jesus and his significance, and the people are deeply moved by this in the in the reading, and they say, what then must we do? And part of the kerygma is always the call that somebody who hears this make a decision about what it is you want to do. So he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and then go out and be one of God's people in the world. Sometimes we get the idea that the sacraments are kind of, you know, ex opere operati actions, or we used to call it in seminary, zap theology, right? So that it goes, and now, 
But what it really means, of course, is an encounter with the risen Christ. And we believe that the sacraments are outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual graces. So you may not always feel like you have had an infusion of this sacramental power, but you have. And so Peter is saying, do this, and now you can be part of the people of God and part of this movement that believes that in Jesus Christ, in his words and in his works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. So then we go to 1 Peter, and we have Peter again speaking now about baptism and its importance. I mentioned, I think, on Easter, maybe even last week, one of the words in the early church, one of the Greek words for baptism was photismus, which means enlightenment, the light of Christ, God coming now inwardly, the light of God, showing you all of the fine things about your character that are godly, and also showing you your dark places and how you might uh, move in a direction that uh, pushes those to the side. So we find in First Peter uh, fragments of an early baptismal liturgy. And it occurred uh, to me to say this because I didn't last week. Uh, the great overwhelming majority of Jesus' audience in his earthly ministry were illiterate. They could not read or write. But their capacity for uh, memorizing as the result of that was enormous. And we see it in parts of the world even today. I would guess that uh, some of the most prominent Muslims uh, know the entire Quran by heart. And I know people who know this, all the Psalms by heart. But they have to try and do that. It's not as easy as it used to be. N.T. Wright, the great biblical scholar, says, if, if you want to, you should try to memorize one of Paul's epistles. They're not that long. And you can do it. But he wasn't talking to somebody my age whose memory work would be, shall we say, shaking. But younger people might benefit from that when, when he was asked. He said that that might be an important thing to do. Now, the reason I mentioned the fact that Jesus' audience was primarily illiterate is that their memory powers were very great. And the biblical witness, when you read the New Testament with that in mind, you begin to see that there are little phrases both in the Gospels and in Paul's letters and in the other writings that are like little couplets and they're easily memorizable. So a person could memorize that and use it as a device for mission. To, to proclaim the Gospel to somebody and to say what it means. Because the meaning has been given to them in these short little po uh, poetic lines and so forth. They're written in that way, and you can see it in, the, in English, and you can really see it in the Greek text. You can see how, how that works. So think about people who were using this as time went on, because it really wasn't written for them if they couldn't read or write, you know? You always need to remember that the Bible was not written to us. 
It was written for us. But the people that first heard these words were people who were living in a particular place and time and were under the influences of all of the way in which uh, the ancient Near East operated. And so understanding all the deep things of Christian faith and belief need first to go through that filter and then we begin to uh, make some clear understanding about that a long time later. So Peter is talking about uh, baptism in First Peter and its importance and necessity and that this is sort of the starting place for all of us that we now enter on the way seeking Seeking the truth. None of us can know the truth, but all of us should seek it. We can't know the whole truth, but we can begin to understand it through uh, applying ourselves in that regard. So, First Peter is about how we understand the importance of baptism and the uh, association of baptism with the early church, with the Easter message in that sense. So we come to the road to Emmaus, and it's a wonderful story. Two disciples are going to Emmaus. There are in the uh, Middle East, by the way, three Emmauses, where somebody says, no, this is Emmaus, this is Emmaus, this is Emmaus. Uh, perhaps the most compelling one, uh, Father Cockrell spoke about it today at the sermon discussion. He goes to the, the Middle East all the time. Uh, there's one that has a chapel uh, there where the acoustics in the first place are out of this world. But also it's a community of both men and women, Benedictines, who have are in this church. And every Sunday is a celebration of the Emmaus story because they wish to draw the connection between Jesus was known to us in the breaking of the bread. So we're on our way to Emmaus, the two disciples, and they're joined by Jesus, but they don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. And this is a feature, by the way, of um, more than one resurrection appearance. Jesus looks the same but different. So, for example, in John's Gospel, when the apostles are coming up to the shore and their fish boats, and there's Jesus on the beach cooking fish and eating fish. It says in the text that they knew it was the Lord but were afraid to say it. Like, uh, what is Jesus doing there cooking fish? That sort of thing. So it's one of the features of the idea of Jesus' bodily resurrection as somebody that was not instantly recognized and then seen and understood in terms of who he was. So Jesus is walking with them. They don't know who he is, and so they get to Emmaus, and he's going to keep going on the road, and they plead with him to come and and, uh, do this. The other thing that uh, Ernest reminded us of today is that the, uh, and I don't remember the, the uh, Hebrew name, but the town, Emmaus, uh, had the name of the uh, a haven of robbers. So in the ancient Near East, the, the people who went out on the road, bandits, brigands, sta- stayed there, lived there, slept there. 
And so that's why in the text they say to Jesus, don't keep going, it's getting dark, you shouldn't do this. So he decides to go in with them, and they sit down, and Jesus takes the bread and breaks it, and they see him as Jesus. To the community that wrote Luke's gospel, uh, 50 years later, Luke was written in about 85 CE. This was a reminder that Jesus has made known to us each time we celebrate the Eucharist and that we see him as he is. I'll talk about uh, in a few minutes what, how we understand the presence of Christ and what it means when we're here on Sunday, how we understand it. But before I do that, I want to say something about uh, the balance that occurs in this gospel between the word and the sacrament. In, uh, since the Reformation, we have had a split in most churches between those who emphasize the word, the preaching of the word, the importance of the scriptures is central, and those who understand the sacramental life The Eucharistic life is not only essential but necessary. So we have magisterial Reformation people like Presbyterians and all the so forth. We have the Roman Catholic Church and we have our church, which, as it turns out, is both Catholic and Reformed. And it means that we have sought to put together not always successfully, but we have sought to put together the word and the sacrament as one. So that it's not one is more important than the other, but that they're both necessary. In our liturgy, and in in fact the Roman Mass and and, uh, other liturgical churches, we have the liturgy of the word first, and its historic origins come from the synagogue liturgy in Judaism, And we have the sacramental part, which is the Eucharistic liturgy. And these were joined. So you have that first, and then you have uh, the Eucharist. And the word becomes, once again, central to our self-understanding. Now, the good thing is that many of the Reformed churches over the last 40 to 50 years have begun to cop to the idea that they need to bring more sacramental character into their common life and worship. Lutherans are liturgical churches. We are liturgical churches, Roman Catholics. But I'm talking about Presbyterians, Congregationalists, you know, Methodists who spun off from the Anglicans. That we now say, you know, the liturgy is important and so is the Eucharist. And so we want to have that more frequently than we did before and understand its importance. Excuse <coughs> me. And understand that in some ways uh, we needed to... Uh, Bring that back. I went to a seminar, a continuing education thing, about 10 or 15 years ago, and there was a young Presbyterian minister in the thing, and he got up in the middle of this thing and he said, You know what? I've been a Presbyterian minister now for about seven years, and I got to tell you, I'm coming to the point where the Presbyterians have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Right? 
So I think it's important that we integrate it. This was not a slam against Presbyterians by any means, but he just said the emphasis is a little out of kilter, and I'm happy to see that we're walking it back so that we're together. So that means those of us who have the privilege of being present at the Eucharist on a weekly basis at the very least um, need to figure out what we mean when we talk of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. What does it mean? Well, there's a lot of abstruse conversation about something called the real presence, and there are words that are kind of uh, controversial like transubstantiation and all of this sort of thing. So we get all bound up in those kind of conversations, and those all go back to the Middle Ages and the big conversations with Thomas Aquinas and Peter Abelard and uh, other more obscure names about what it's the real presence. How is Christ present? Father Thomas Keating, the Trappist monk, says, Christ is present at the Eucharist in five ways. Christ is present in the assembly. You, us, the assembly. By the way, if you use that word for congregation amongst people who are liturgical uh, know-it-alls, they'll be very impressed. The assembly. Right? They'll know something about that. It's very important. Christ is present in the assembly. Christ is present in the reading of the word. The reading from the Bible, principally the gospel. Christ is present in the Eucharistic prayer. That's the the, the word for what you probably experience often as the long prayer which is the one proclaimed by the presider at the Eucharist, which is the prayer of consecration, where in this process, uh, the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood. But for 50 years now, even in the Roman Catholic Church, some wouldn't uh, advertise this too much, we believe that the change is affected by all of us. So it isn't some magic hands thing that's done up here by the presider. It's the assembly that puts the sacrament together and the designated representatives in the community of faith are the ones who say the words. So Christ is present in the Eucharistic prayer. Christ is present in the bread and in the wine. And Christ is present in each of us as we receive communion and when we leave the church we have received this spiritual food and drink that strengthens us and provides us the ways and the means to be God's people in the world to make a difference to um, meet uh, effectively the challenges and opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis that's why we believe that the communion has power And that it makes people, as I say, feel better. I used to get, I've said this many times, I used to get very snippy when I was a young priest and somebody said, I don't know, Father Brewer, I believe all this stuff about the real presence or about what this is or what that is. I just don't know whether I do. And I would say, well, you're just going to have to feel, you all see where you go, you know, they would say, all I know is that when I receive Holy Communion, I feel better. Now, good. I want happy. I want content. I want people who feel better. 
Because when you feel better, you're more available both to your emotional, spiritual, and mental states internally, and you're more available to other people to serve and to support and to share the practical wisdom that you've learned over time. So this week, think about uh, the importance of the Eucharist. Think about uh, the risen Jesus. I mentioned this last week. I want to say it one more time. None of the resurrection appearances agree with one another. And so the radical skeptics believe that because they don't agree, they can't be true. And yet the fact of the matter is that if you think this through in another way, the differences between them is an affirmation of their early origins and how in desperate places people began to experience the bodily resurrection of Jesus. They didn't have time to cook the evidence. If they did, the accounts would be far more uniform than they are now because they would have been arranged in such a way as that we would read Mark's version and we read Matthew's version and we read Luke's version and John's version and they'd all sound the same. Right? But as it is, there are four Gospels and there are four stories of the resurrection and they don't agree with each other. And I take that as affirmation and uh, not something that uh, causes us to reject that. So this week, think about the Eucharist, the light of the world. Reginald Fuller said, uh, he's a famous biblical scholar, the resurrection made manifest what was true of the cross itself that it was in fact the victory over human alienation and separation from God, over all that the New Testament means when it speaks of sin, the wrath of God, and death. To prepare this sermon, I was reading from a book by Bart Ehrman, where he was questioned, uh, where he was responding to a question about how many independent sources are there for the crucifixion? Now, here's Mr. Radical Skeptic of the Universe. Eleven. He said, eleven that I know of. Sure, right? Most of the ancient literature that we possess, that we use in the whole of the canon of Western philosophy, of who we understand ourselves to be as Western people, influenced by the Greeks and all that sort of thing, most of them we have maybe one. And sometimes if you have two, they say it's a bonanza. We now have sure evidence there are two. We have 5,562 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Just to let you know. So, uh, rest carefully in the arms of God and uh, be fruitful. Amen.